Paul tells us in the epistle today that by Christ's blood we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, in accord with the riches of his grace that he lavishes upon us. This week, along with 30 other youths and young adults, including Father Matt, actually, I had the opportunity to confront this claim of Paul, this, this claim that God is lavishing his grace upon us when we visited the Blackfeet people on the Browning Reservation, or on the Blackfeet Reservation in Browning, and uh, we were there for what's called the Justice Outreach Project. So Blackfeet are predominantly Catholic, and the majority of the people on the reservation are Catholic, and overwhelmingly Christian besides, you know, Christians that have claimed their faith, openly Christian people who are ready to pray at a moment's notice, you know, and so they're, they're faithful people, they're people who know the Lord, and yet, all the same, they suffer dire poverty, you know, 70% unemployment on the reservation, alcohol and drugs have just devastated their community, wreaked havoc upon them, there's a, a disproportionate amount of young deaths due to drugs, and half the children born in the reservation are addicted to drugs. And there's some serious problems going on there. Uh, so, so where's God's grace in this place? Where's God's grace in the midst of all of that? You know, his people need him. You know, why doesn't he come to their aid? Those are some of the questions on the hearts of the young people who, who came to visit there. Yet, as we came to know the people there and see their faith... Suddenly, Jesus seemed to be everywhere. And, and very different questions arose in their hearts, and in my own heart. You know, we heard story after story of Christ visiting, healing, and protecting his people in the midst of this difficult place. And in a totally unique way, and in many times, through their kind of specifically Blackfeet culture, the Lord spoke to them very clearly. So another question arose, and that's, what makes for joy? You know, we have so many problems in our own society, but they have so many more, and seemingly more serious ones, but they're joyful people. So what makes for joy? You know, they're suffering so intensely, both at the hands of a corrupt government, and then the hands of their own addictions that are oppressing them, that they never fail to speak with gratitude of God's grace and to witness to his powerful work in their midst. So I think with all this in mind, we come back to our epistle for today. You know, because it's all a question of God's grace. You know, what are its limits? How exactly does God's grace change our lives? What is he doing in the world? How is he at work? And how can Paul claim that God is lavishing his grace upon us when there's so much suffering and division and chaos? But I think we see, when we look a little closer, that God is so much more powerfully at work in times of suffering. Even then in times of, of peace and prosperity, when we, when we kind of can visibly see his work. He's so much more powerfully at work in suffering. Paul tells us that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So wherever there's suffering, you can usually find sin. And the Lord is more at work in those places. Because whenever we turn away from God toward our sin, when in pride we 
we feed an addiction to any substance, or when we alienate those we love, whether that's through indifference or selfishness or greed, or when we take revenge on those that we hate, whether that's through gossip or detraction or scandal, we wall our hearts off to the Lord. And that's basically what sin is, is, is putting up a wall to the Lord and rejecting him in some way. But in so many of the times in our lives, the Lord uses these exact moments, you know, these moments when we've rejected him, to work grace powerfully into our lives. He doesn't do it despite these things. He does it through them. And we see it at work in the scriptures all over the place. I think for my favorite example is, is the first example in the garden. So Adam began his existence, Adam and Eve began their existence walking with the Lord in the garden. They walked with him. They, they were face to face with the Lord. They spoke with him. They were his friends. They knew him intimately. And they chose to reject him and to sin, to strive for equality with the one who created them out of love. And, and this was a perfectly free thing, and that's what makes it so serious. You know, for, for all of us, when we sin, our, our, it's usually compromised in some way by our lack of freedom, our slavery to certain things, uh, our, our wills are never perfectly ordered, and so, and so we, we, we're always struggling with that. But Adam and Eve weren't. They were perfectly free, and they rejected the Lord. And what is his response to that? What does he do? He immediately undertakes a plan for our redemption. He immediately begins his plan to win back our love. A 3,000 year or more in intense struggle, brutal process to win us back to himself. That ultimately culminates in the incarnation of his son. When he sent his son among us to die on the cross, to rise, and to ascend into heaven. And it's in his ascension that we become sons and daughters of God. So we look at this story that we began as Christ's, as God's friends. We began as his friends. And we rejected him. And his response to us rejecting him was to make us his sons and daughters. So he gives us a greater grace exactly through what we've done. This is what Augustine calls our happy fault, O happy sin of Adam, that gave us so great a Savior. And so we look at who our God is. Who is he? He's a loving and a powerful and a merciful and a just God. That is his justice, to give us great gifts precisely through the times we reject him. So he would never overwhelm us. He's a God who pursues us relentlessly but will never overwhelm us. God could show up right here in all of his majesty and overwhelm our senses. We would have no choice but to believe in him. But he chooses not to because he respects our freedom. Instead, he comes in the form of bread and wine. And something that requires faith but has all the graces we could ever desire to be perfect saints. He never stops pursuing us in love. And what's a, what's a fitting response to this? You know, how should we act in the face of such a great mystery? I want to return just to the, the Blackfeet people and their, and their beautiful spirituality. 
Because as far as I'm concerned, of all the people that I met, those who were at least in tune with the, kind of who they were as Blackfeet, you know, the, the veil that we put up, you know, this wall that we put up between the physical world and the spiritual world and how those two interact, for them, basically doesn't exist. You know, the spiritual world and the physical world are all totally intertwined. You know, they, the Lord is at work in all things, very literally for them. And this awareness gives them a particular boldness in their spiritual life. So they know well their poverty by human standards. But their trust in God's riches gives them this incredibly deep freedom to demand great things from God. Whether that's just in prayer and fasting, they, they very intentionally fast in powerful ways together. And they expect the Lord to be at work in the midst of that. Uh, they have no problems asking for total healing from addiction. You know, this moment, Lord, heal me. Or, I, Lord, I have cancer. This moment, heal me. Uh, they're bold in, in that. You know, one, one woman told us, you know, our God is the creator of all living things. Therefore, he can speak through any living thing, and he can heal any living thing. It's as simple as that. Think if we could learn to trust in the Lord's grace the way the Blackfeet people do, a trust that requires acknowledging in a deep way our own poverty and our total need for God. We begin to see the richness of God's mercy and his providence and how it's at work in everything and how his grace is everywhere, especially in times of suffering. And our lives as missionaries requires exactly this. You know, we see when the gospel, when Jesus sends out his apostles to preach, he gives them, he tells them a walking stick, but no food, no sack, no money, no extra tunic, just a pair of sandals, a single tunic and a walking stick. Our mission requires this trust. And if we choose not to give the Lord this trust, then we only can trust in ourselves. And we all know how trustworthy we are. Not very. You know, Bob Dylan, in multiple songs and interviews that I've heard from him, he just always says, you know, you've got to worship somebody. You've got to worship somebody. If we don't worship the Lord, we end up worshiping ourselves or something else that's unworthy of our worship. Instead, I think we ought to take the approach of Philip Neary. St. Philip Neary every morning would say, Lord... Watch out for Philip today. He might betray you. And I think that attitude, that attitude of humility, that we are totally dependent on the Lord if we are to do anything that's worthwhile, uh, that's the disposition we ought to take. And if we can take that disposition, if we can just hand our lives over to the Lord, then I think we will find uh, this amazing joy that comes with true discipleship. Amen.